Welcome to the Planet Storytime podcast, where we use the power of our imaginations to see the pictures in our minds for some of the best stories ever told. I'm your host, Thomas Mitchell. Here at Planet Storytime, we'd like to express our special thanks to all of you who have supported us through your Patreon donations. Your generous support helps us bring Planet Storytime to you. While we are committed to bringing Planet Storytime free of charge to our fans all over the world, and that's right, to date we have listeners in 84 countries, your donations are always greatly appreciated. Today, we bring you our Stellar Classics episode, featuring How the Rhinoceros Got His Skin and How the Camel Got His Hump by Rudyard Kipling, The Tale of Jeremy Fisher by Beatrix Potter, The Selfish Giant by Oscar Wilde, and The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen. Now, if you can... Take a deep breath in and hold it. And let it out. Now, we're ready for today's story. Remember to see the pictures in your head as you listen to the story. I hope you enjoy it. How the Rhinoceros Got His Skin by Rudyard Kipling Once upon a time, on an uninhabited island on the shores of the Red Sea, there lived a sage from whose hat the rays of the sun were reflected in more than glorious splendor. And the sage lived by the Red Sea with nothing but his hat and his knife and a cooking stove of the kind that you must particularly never touch. And one day he took flour and water and currants and plums and sugar and things and made himself one cake which was two feet across and three feet wide. It was indeed a superior comestible, that magic. And he put it on the stove because he was allowed to cook on that stove and he baked it and he baked it till it was all done brown and smelt most sentimental. But just as he was going to eat it, there came down to the beach from the altogether uninhabited interior one rhinoceros with a horn on his nose, two piggy eyes, and few manners. He had no manners then, and he has no manners now, and he never will have any manners. He said, how? And the sage left that cake and climbed to the top of a palm tree with nothing on but his hat, from which the rays of the sun were always reflected in more than glorious splendor. And the rhinoceros upset the oil stove with his nose, and the cake rolled on the sand, and he spiked that cake on the horn of his nose, and he ate it, and he went away waving his tail to the desolate and exclusively uninhabited interior which abuts on the islands of Mazanderin, Socotra, and the promontories of the larger equinox. Then the sage came down from his palm tree and put the stove on its legs and recited the following sloka, which, as you have not heard, I will now proceed to relate. Them that 
takes cakes, which the sage-like man bakes, makes dreadful mistakes. And there was a great deal more in that than you would think, because five weeks later, there was a heat wave in the Red Sea, and everybody took off all the clothes they had. The sage took off his hat, but the rhinoceros took off his skin and carried it over his shoulder as he came down to the beach to bathe. In those days, it buttoned underneath with three buttons and looked like a waterproof. He said nothing whatever about the sage's cake because he had eaten it all. And he never had any manners then, since, or henceforward. He waddled straight into the water and blew bubbles through his nose, leaving his skin on the beach. Presently, the sage came by and found the skin, and he smiled one smile that ran all around his face two times. Then he danced three times round the skin and rubbed his hands. Then he went to his camp and filled his hat with cake crumbs, for the sage never ate anything but cake and never swept out his camp. He took that skin and he shook that skin and he scrubbed that skin and he rubbed that skin just as full of old, dry, stale, tickly cake crumbs and some burned currants as ever it could possibly hold. Then he climbed to the top of his palm tree and waited for the rhinoceros to come out of the water and put it on. And the rhinoceros did. He buttoned it up with the three buttons and tickled it like cake crumbs in bed. Then he wanted to scratch, but that made it worse. Then he lay down on the sands and rolled and rolled and rolled. And every time he rolled, the cake crumbs tickled him worse and worse and worse. Then he ran to the palm tree and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed himself against it. He rubbed so much and so hard that he rubbed his skin into a great fold over his shoulders and another fold underneath where the buttons used to be. But he rubbed the buttons off and he rubbed some more folds over his legs and it spoiled his temper but it didn't make the least difference to the cake crumbs. They were inside his skin and they tickled. So he went home very angry indeed and horribly scratchy, and from that day to this, every rhinoceros has great folds in his skin and a very bad temper, all on account of the cake crumbs inside. But the sage came down from his palm tree, wearing his hat, from which the rays of the sun were reflected in more than glorious splendor, packed up his cooking stove, and went away in the direction of Oratavo, Amygdala, the upland meadows of Antananarivo, and the marshes of Sanaput. The End How the Camel Got His Hump by Rudyard Kipling 
This tale tells us how the camel got his big hump. In the beginning of years, when the world was so new and all, and the animals were just beginning to work for the human, there was a camel, and he lived in the middle of a howling desert because he did not want to work, and besides, he was a howler himself. So he ate sticks and thorns and tamarisks and milkweed and prickles, most excruciatingly idle. And when anybody spoke to him, he said, "Humph," just "Humph," and no more. Presently, the horse came to him on Monday morning with a saddle on his back and a bit in his mouth, and said, "Camel, oh camel, come out and trot like the rest of us." "Humph," said the camel, and the horse went away and told the human. Presently, the dog came to him with a stick in his mouth and said, "Camel, oh camel, come and fetch and carry like the rest of us." "Humph," said the camel, and the dog went away and told the human. Presently, the ox came to him with the yoke on his neck and said, "Camel, camel, come and plow like the rest of us." "Humph," said the camel. And the ox went away and told the human. At the end of the day, the human called the horse and the dog and the ox together and said, "Three, oh three, I'm very sorry for you, with the world so new and all, but that humph thing in the desert can't work, or he would have been here by now. So I am going to leave him alone, and you must work double time to make up for it." That made the three very angry, with the world so new and all, and they held a palaver, and an indaba, and a pukayat, and a powwow on the edge of the desert, and the camel came chewing milkweed, most excruciating idle, and laughed at them. Then he said, "Humph," and went away again. Presently, there came along the genie in charge of all deserts, rolling in a cloud of dust. Genies always travel that way because it is magic. And he stopped to palaver and powwow with the three. Genie of all deserts said, "The horse, is it right for anyone to be idle with the world so new and all?" "Certainly not," said the genie. Well, there's a thing in the middle of your howling desert, and he's a howler himself, with a long neck and long legs, and he hasn't done a stroke of work since Monday morning. He won't trot. Whew! Said the genie, whistling. That's my camel for all the gold in Arabia. What does he say about it? He says, "Humph!" Said the dog, and he won't fetch and carry. Does he say anything else? Only humph, and he won't plow," said the ox. "Very good," said the genie. "I'll humph him if you will kindly wait a minute." The genie rolled himself up in his dust cloak and took a bearing across the desert, and found the camel most excruciatingly idle, looking at his own reflection in a pool of water. My long and bubbling friend. What's this I hear of you doing no work with the world so new and all? Humph," 
said the camel. The genie sat down with his chin in his hand and began to think a great magic while the camel looked at his own reflection in the pool of water. You've given the three extra work ever since Monday morning, all on account of your scruciating idleness. And he went on thinking magics with his chin in his hand. Humph, said the camel. I shouldn't say that again if I were you, said the genie. You might say it once too often. Bubbles, I want you to work. And the camel said, Humph, again. But no sooner had he said it than he saw his back that he was so proud of, puffing up and puffing up into a great big lolloping humph. Do you see that? said the genie. That's your very own humph that you've brought upon your very own self by not working. Today is Thursday, and you've done no work since Monday, when the work began. Now you are going to work. How can I, said the camel, with this humph on my back? That's made a purpose, said the genie. All because you missed those three days. You'll be able to work now for three days without eating, because you can live on your hump. And don't you ever say I never did anything for you. Come out of the desert and go to the three and behave. Humph yourself. And the camel humphed himself, humph and all, and went away to join the three. And from that day to this, the camel always wears a humph. We call it a hump now, not to hurt his feelings. But he has never yet caught up with the other three days that he missed at the beginning of the world. And he has never yet learned how to behave. And now, a sing-songy poem. The camel's hump is an ugly lump, which well you may see at the zoo. But uglier yet is the hump we get from having too little to do. A kiddies and grown-ups too, ooh, ooh, if we haven't enough to do. Ooh, ooh, we get the hump, camellius hump, the hump that is black and blue. We climb out of bed with a frowsy head and a snarly, yarly voice. We shiver and scowl and we grunt and we growl at our bath and our boots and our toys. There ought to be a corner for me and I know there is one for you. When we get the hump, camellius hump, the hump that is black and blue. The cure for this ill is not to sit still or frowst with a book by the fire, but to take a large hoe and a shovel also and dig till you gently perspire. And then you will find the sun and the wind and the genie of the garden too have lifted the hump, the horrible hump, the hump that is black and blue. I get it as well as you, ooh, ooh, if I haven't enough to do, ooh, ooh, we all get hump, camellius hump, kiddies and grown-ups too.
The Tale of Mr. Jeremy Fisher by Beatrix Potter Once upon a time there was a frog called Mr. Jeremy Fisher. He lived in a little damp house amongst the buttercups at the edge of a pond. The water was all slippy sloppy in the larder and in the back passage, but Mr. Jeremy liked getting his feet wet. Nobody ever scolded him, and he never caught a cold. He was quite pleased when he looked out and saw large drops of rain splashing in the pond. I will get some worms and go fishing and catch a dish of minnows for my dinner, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. If I catch more than five fish, I will invite my friends Mr. Alderman Ptolemy Tortoise and Sir Isaac Newton. The Alderman, however, eats salad. Mr. Jeremy put on a Macintosh coat and a pair of shiny galoshes. He took his rod and basket and set off with enormous hops to the place where he kept his boat. The boat was round and green and very like the other lily leaves. It was tied to a water plant in the middle of the pond. Mr. Jeremy took a reed pole and pushed the boat out into open water. I know a good place for minnows, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. Mr. Jeremy stuck his pole into the mud and fastened the boat to it. Then he settled himself cross-legged and arranged his fishing tackle. He had the dearest little red float. His rod was a tough stalk of grass. His line was a fine long white horsehair. And he tied a little wriggling worm at the end. The rain trickled down his back, and for nearly an hour he stared at the float. This is getting tiresome. I think I should like some lunch, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. He punted back again amongst the water plants and took some lunch out of his basket. We'll be right back. Hey, parents. Yeah, you. Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. I will eat a butterfly sandwich and wait till the shower is over said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. A great big water beetle came up underneath the lily leaf and tweaked the toe of one of his galoshes. Mr. Jeremy crossed his legs up shorter, out of reach, and went on eating his sandwich. Once or twice something moved about with a rustle and a splash amongst the rushes at the side of the pond. I trust that is not a rat. I think I had better get away from here. Mr. Jeremy shoved the boat out again a little way and dropped in the bait. There was a bite almost directly. The float gave a tremendous bobbit. A minnow! A minnow! I have him by the nose! cried Mr. Jeremy Fisher, jerking up his rod. But what a horrible surprise! Instead of a smooth, fat minnow, Mr. Jeremy landed little Jack Sharp, the stickleback, covered with spines. The stickleback fish floundered about the boat, pricking and snapping until he was quite out of breath. 
Then he jumped back into the water, and a shoal of other little fishes put their heads out and laughed at Mr. Jeremy Fisher. And while Mr. Jeremy sat disconsolately on the edge of his boat, sucking his sore fingers and peering down into the water, a much worse thing happened. A really frightful thing it would have been if Mr. Jeremy had not been wearing a Macintosh coat. A great big enormous trout came up with a splash, and it seized Mr. Jeremy with a snap. Ow! 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 And then it turned and dived down to the bottom of the pond. But the trout was so displeased with the taste of the Macintosh coat that in less than half a minute it spat him out again, and the only thing it swallowed was Mr. Jeremy's galoshes. Mr. Jeremy bounced up to the surface of the water like a cork, and the bubbles out of a soda water bottle, and he swam with all his might to the edge of the pond. He scrambled out on the first bank he came to, and he hopped home across the meadow with his Macintosh all in tatters. What a mercy that was not a pike, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. I have lost my rod and basket, but it does not much matter, for I am sure I should never have dared to go fishing again. He put some sticking plaster on his fingers, and his friends both came to dinner. He could not offer them fish, but he had something else in his larder. Sir Isaac Newton wore his black and gold waistcoat, and Mr. Alderman Ptolemy Tortoise brought a salad with him in a string bag. And instead of a nice dish of minnows, they had a roasted grasshopper with ladybird sauce which frogs consider a beautiful treat, but I think it must have been awful. The End The Selfish Giant by Oscar Wilde Every afternoon, as they were coming from school, the children used to go and play in the giant's garden. It was a large and lovely garden with soft green grass. Here and there over the grass stood beautiful flowers like stars, and there were twelve peach trees that in the springtime broke out into delicate blossoms of pink and pearl, and in the autumn bore rich fruit. The birds sat on the trees and sang so sweetly that the children used to stop their games in order to listen to them. How happy we are, they cried to each other. One day the giant came back. He had been to visit his friend, the Cornish ogre, and had stayed with him for seven years. After the seven years were over, he had said all that he had to say, for his conversation was limited, and he determined to return to his own castle. When he arrived, he saw the children playing in the garden. What are you doing here? He cried in a very gruff voice, and the children ran away. My own garden is my own garden, said the giant. Anyone can understand that, and I will allow nobody to play in it but myself. So he built a high wall all around it and put up a notice board. Trespassers will be prosecuted. He was a very selfish giant. 
The poor children had now nowhere to play. They tried to play on the road, but the road was very dusty and full of hard stones, and they did not like it. They used to wander round the high wall when their lessons were over and talk about the beautiful garden inside. How happy we were there, they said to each other. Then the spring came, and all over the country there were little blossoms and little birds. Only in the garden of the selfish giant, it was still winter. The birds did not care to sing in it, as there were no children, and the trees forgot to blossom. Once a beautiful flower put its head out from the grass, but when it saw the notice board, it was so sorry for the children that it slipped back into the ground again and went off to sleep. The only people who were pleased were the snow and the frost. Spring has forgotten this garden, they cried. So we will live here all year round. The snow covered up the grass with her great white cloak, and the frost painted all the trees silver. Then they invited the north wind to stay with them, and he came. He was wrapped in furs, and he roared all day about the garden and blew the chimney pots down. This is a beautiful spot, he said. We must ask the hail on a visit. So the hail came. Every day for three hours he rattled on the roof of the castle till he broke most of the slates, and then he ran round and round the garden as fast as he could go. He was dressed in grey, and his breath was like ice. I cannot understand why the spring is so late in coming, said the selfish giant, as he sat at the window and looked out at his cold white garden. I hope there will be a change in the weather. But the spring never came, nor the summer. The autumn gave golden fruit to every garden, but to the giant's garden she gave none. He is too selfish, she said. So it was always winter there, and the north wind and the hail and the frost and the snow danced about through the trees. One morning the giant was lying awake in bed when he heard some lovely music. It sounded so sweet to his ears that he thought it must be the king's musicians passing by. It was really only a little linnet singing outside his window. But it was so long since he had heard a bird sing in his garden that it seemed to him to be the most beautiful music in the world. Then the hail stopped dancing over his head, and the north wind ceased roaring, and a delicious perfume came to him through the open casement. I believe the spring has come at last, said the giant, and he jumped out of bed and looked out. And what did he see? He saw a most wonderful sight. Through a little hole in the wall the children had crept in, and they were sitting in the branches of the trees. In every tree that he could see, there was a little child, and the trees were so glad to have the children back again that they had covered themselves with blossoms and were waving their arms gently about the children's heads. The birds were flying about and twittering with delight, and the flowers were looking up through the green grass and laughing. 
It was a lovely scene. Only in one corner, it was still winter. It was the farthest corner of the garden, and in it was standing a little boy. He was so small that he could not reach up to the branches of the tree, and he was wandering all round it, crying bitterly. The poor tree was still quite covered with frost and snow, and the north wind was blowing and roaring above it. Climb up, little boy, said the tree, and it bent its branches down as low as it could, but the boy was too tiny, and the giant's heart melted as he looked out. How selfish I have been! Now I know why the spring would not come here. I will put that little boy on the top of the tree, and then I will knock down the wall, and my garden shall be the children's playground for ever and ever. He was really very sorry for what he had done, so he crept downstairs and opened the front door quite softly and went out into the garden. But when the children saw him, they were so frightened that they all ran away, and the garden became winter again. Only the little boy did not run, for his eyes were so full of tears that he did not see the giant coming. And the giant stole up behind him and took him gently in his hand and put him up into the tree. And the tree broke at once into blossom. And the birds came and sang on it, and the little boy stretched out his two arms and flung them round the giant's neck and kissed him. And the other children, when they saw that the giant was not wicked any longer, came running back, and with them came the spring. It is your garden now, little children," said the giant, and he took a great axe and knocked down the wall. And when the people were going to market at twelve o'clock, they found the giant playing with the children in the most beautiful garden they had ever seen. All day long they played, and in the evening they came to the giant to bid him goodbye. But where is your little companion, the boy I put into the tree? The giant loved him the best because he had kissed him. We don't know," answered the children. He has gone away. You must tell him to be sure and come here tomorrow," said the giant. But the children said they did not know where he lived, and had never seen him before. And the giant felt very sad. Every afternoon, when school was over, the children came and played with the giant. But the little boy, whom the giant loved, was never seen again. The giant was very kind to all the children, yet he longed for his little friend, and often spoke of him. How I would like to see him! He used to say. Years went over, and the giant grew very old and feeble. He could not play about any more, so he sat in a huge armchair and watched the children at their games and admired his garden. I have many beautiful flowers, but the children are the most beautiful flowers of all. One winter, he looked out of his window as he was dressing. He did not hate the winter now, for he knew that it was merely the spring asleep, and that the flowers were resting. Suddenly, he rubbed his eyes in wonder. 
and looked and looked. It certainly was a marvelous sight. In the farthest corner of the garden was a tree quite covered with lovely white blossoms. Its branches were all golden, and silver fruit hung down from them, and underneath it stood the little boy he had loved. Downstairs ran the giant in great joy, and out in the garden he hastened across the grass and came near to the child, and they embraced and remained friends forevermore. The End The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen Many years ago there was an emperor who was so excessively fond of new clothes that he spent all his money on them. He did not trouble himself in the least about his soldiers, nor did he care to go either to the theater or for a hunt, except for the opportunities that afforded him to display his new clothes. He had a different suit for each hour of the day, and as of any other king or emperor, one is accustomed to say, he is sitting in council. It was always said of him, the emperor is sitting in his wardrobe. Time passed merrily in the large town which was his capital, Strangers arrived every day at the court. One day, two scoundrels, calling themselves weavers, made their appearance. They gave out that they knew how to weave stuffs of the most beautiful colors and elaborate patterns, the clothes manufactured from which should have the wonderful property of remaining invisible to everyone who was unfit for the office they held, or who was extraordinarily simple in character. These must indeed be splendid clothes, thought the emperor. Had I such a suit, I might at once find out what and who. These must indeed be splendid clothes, thought the emperor. Had I such a suit, I might at once find out who in my realms are unfit for their office, and also be able to distinguish the wise from the foolish. This stuff must be woven for me immediately. And he caused large sums of money to be given to both the weavers in order that they might begin their work directly. The two pretended weavers set up two looms and affected to work very busily, though in reality they did nothing at all. They asked for the most delicate silk and the purest gold thread, put both into their own knapsacks, and then continued their pretended work at the empty looms until late at night. I should like to know how the weavers are getting on with my cloth said the emperor to himself, after some little time had elapsed. He was, however, rather embarrassed when he remembered that a simpleton or one unfit for his office would be unable to see the manufacture. To be sure, he thought he had nothing to risk in his own person, but yet he would prefer sending somebody else to bring him intelligence about the weavers and their work before he troubled himself in the affair. 
All the people throughout the city had heard of the wonderful property the cloth was to possess, and all were anxious to learn how wise or how ignorant their neighbors might prove to be. I will send my faithful old minister to the weavers, said the emperor at last, after some deliberation. He will best be able to see how the cloth looks, for he is a man of sense, and no one can be more suitable for his office than he is. So the faithful old minister went into the hall, where the scoundrels were working with all their might at their empty looms. What can be the meaning of this? thought the old man, opening his eyes very wide. I cannot discover the least bit of thread on the looms. However, he did not express his thoughts aloud. The impostors requested him very courteously to be so good as to come nearer their looms, and then asked him whether the design pleased him, and whether the colors were not beautiful, at the same time pointing to the empty frames. The poor old minister looked and looked. He could not discover anything on the looms, for a very good reason. There was nothing there. What? thought he again. Is it impossible? Is it possible that I am a simpleton? I have never thought so myself, and no one must know it now if I am so. Can it be that I am unfit for my office? No, that must not be it either. I will never confess that I could not see the stuff. Well, minister, said one of the impostors, still pretending to work, you did not say whether the stuff pleases you. Oh, it is excellent, replied the old minister, looking at the loom through his spectacles. This pattern and the colors, yes, I will tell the emperor without delay how very beautiful I think them. We will be much obliged to you, said the impostors, and then they named the different colors and described the pattern of the pretended stuff. The old minister listened attentively to their words in order that he might repeat them to the emperor, and then the impostors asked for more silk and gold, saying that it was necessary to complete what they had begun. However, they put all that was given them into their knapsacks and continued to work with as much apparent diligence as before at their empty looms. The emperor now sent another officer of his court to see how the men were getting on, and to ascertain whether the cloth would soon be ready. It was just the same with this gentleman as with the minister. He surveyed the looms on all sides, but could see nothing at all but the empty frames. Does not the stuff appear as beautiful to you as it did to my lord the minister? asked the impostors of the emperor's second ambassador, at the same time making the same gestures as before and talking of the design and colors which were not there. I certainly am not stupid, thought the messenger. 
It must be that I am not fit for my good, profitable office. Oh, that is very odd. Uh, however, no one shall know anything about it. And accordingly, he praised the stuff he could not see and declared that he was delighted with both colors and patterns. Indeed, please, your imperial majesty, said he to his sovereign when he returned. The cloth which the weavers are preparing is extraordinarily magnificent. The whole city was talking of the splendid cloth which the emperor had ordered to be woven at his expense. And now the emperor himself wished to see the costly manufacture while it was still in the loom. Accompanied by a select number of officers of the court, among whom were the two honest men who had already admired the cloth, he went to the crafty impostors who, as soon as they were aware of the emperor's approach, went on working more diligently than ever, although they still did not pass a single thread through the looms. Is not the work absolutely magnificent? said the two officers of the crown already mentioned. If your majesty will only be pleased to look at it, what a splendid design, what glorious colors! And at the same time they pointed to the empty frames, for they imagined that everyone else could see this exquisite piece of workmanship. How is this? said the emperor to himself. I can see nothing. This is indeed a terrible affair. Am I a simpleton, or am I unfit to be emperor? That would be the worst thing that could happen. Oh, oh, the cloth is charming, said he aloud. It has my complete approval. And he smiled most graciously and looked closely at the empty looms, for no one on no account would say that he could not see what two of the officers of his court had praised so much. All his retinue now strained their eyes, hoping to discover something on the looms, but they could see no more than the others. Nevertheless, they all exclaimed, Oh, how beautiful! and advised his majesty to have some new clothes made from this splendid material for the approaching procession. Magnificent, charming, excellent, resounded on all sides, and everyone was uncommonly happy. The emperor shared in the general satisfaction and presented the impostors with the ribband of an order of knighthood to be worn in their buttonholes and the title of gentlemen weavers. The rogues sat up the whole of the night before the day on which the procession was to take place and had sixteen candlelights burning so that everyone might see how anxious they were to finish the emperor's new suit. They pretended to roll the cloth of the looms, cut the air with their scissors, and sewed with needles without any thread on them. See? cried they at last. The emperor's new clothes are ready. And now the emperor, with all the grandees of his court, came to the weavers, and the rogues raised their arms as if in the act of holding something up, saying, Here are your majesty's trousers. Here is the scarf. Here is the mantle. The whole suit is as light as a cobweb. One might fancy one has nothing at all on when dressed in it. 
That, however, is the great virtue of this delicate cloth, said all the courtiers, although not one of them could see anything of this exquisite manufacture. If your imperial majesty will be graciously pleased to take off your clothes, we will fit on the new suit in front of the looking glass. The emperor was accordingly undressed, and the rogues pretended to array him in his new suit, the emperor turning around from side to side before the looking glass. How splendid his majesty looks in his new clothes, and how well they fit, everyone cried out. What a design! What colors! These are indeed royal robes! The canopy which is to be borne over your majesty in the procession is waiting, announced the chief master of the ceremonies. I am quite ready, answered the emperor. Do my new clothes fit well? asked he, turning himself round again before the looking glass, in order that he might appear to be examining his handsome suit. The lords of the bedchamber who were to carry his majesty's train of robes felt about on the ground as if they were lifting up the ends of the mantle and pretended to be carrying something, for they would by no means betray anything like simplicity or unfitness for their office. So now the emperor walked under his high canopy in the midst of the procession, through the streets of his capital, and all the people standing by, and those at the windows cried out, Oh, how beautiful are our emperor's new clothes! What a magnificent train there is to the mantle, and how gracefully the scarf hangs! In short, no one would allow that he could not see these much-admired clothes, because in doing so, he would have declared himself either a simpleton or unfit for his office. Certainly, none of the emperor's various suits had ever made so great an impression as these invisible ones. But the emperor has nothing on at all, said a little child. Listen to the voice of innocence exclaimed his father, and what the child had said was whispered from one to another. But he has nothing on at all! At last cried out all the people. The emperor was confused, for he knew that the people were right, but he thought the procession must go on now, and the laws of the bedchamber took greater pains than ever to appear holding up the train of robes, although in reality there was nothing there to hold. The End I hope you enjoyed our Stellar Classics episode as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. That beautiful music you hear along with every story? Well, of course, that's our dear friend Paxton Stanley. Both Paxton and I would like to thank you again for being such a wonderful audience. Until next time, remember to keep using your imagination and see just how powerful your mind truly is. Goodbye for now.